Last Sunday when we gathered here, we truly had a blessed time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus in our Easter worship service. And yet Easter is something that I don't ever want to walk away from too quickly. We have this whole season, this season of Lent that prepares us and gets us ready for the Easter celebration. But then it seems like very quickly we can kind of shift focus and move on to what is next. And so when I thought about what is next for us as a church, fundamentally what was driving my thinking was, well, how can we move from Easter? Having celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, how are we called to now go and live changed, renewed lives in light of that celebration? And initially when I thought about that, I thought of the move that we did in our, our uh, use of the law this morning as a guide to gratitude. The catechism puts the Ten Commandments after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, how we respond in grace. But then I quickly remembered we made that very move only a few years ago. And so I looked after the Ten Commandments in the catechism, and there it focuses on prayer. And in the sermon, in a little bit, I will explain why, but what we are going to be doing is following up after Easter, we're going to be looking at the Heidelberg Catechism's uh, discussion of prayer, how it leads us in our understanding of prayer by using the Lord's Prayer. That's going to be introduced this morning by looking at just question and answer number 116 from the Heidelberg Catechism. For those that may not be familiar the Heidelberg Catechism is one of those tools that the church has used for many hundreds of years that helps us understand the teachings of Scripture and consolidates them in a way that we can learn what that means in terms of application. It is not on the same level of Scripture, it is below Scripture, but we trust that it is a faithful witness to Scripture. The catechism is written in a question and answer format. So this morning, I will ask the question and invite you to respond with me with the words on the screen as the answer that is given. And so in question and answer 116, the catechism asks, why do Christians need to pray? And it answers, as we say together, because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. Because the catechism is not scripture, we want to make sure that our understanding of its teachings are corresponded with the teachings of scripture. And this morning we're going to be looking at just a few verses from the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews. If you'd like to look that in your pew Bibles, it's on 1,189. Otherwise, it is on the screen behind me. It's from Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. And the author writes, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We didn't really coordinate very well with pastors because my opening illustration also uses our cell phone, (laughs) but in much the very same way. And like Lucas was mentioning with the young children, our cell phones, at least mine, it knows who's most important in my life. And that's not because the microphone's always on listening to everything I say or spying on me wherever I go. It's it's very clear and easy. The people that are most important to me are the people that I'm most often calling. They're the ones I'm most often sending text messages to. I've got a whole lot of names and phone numbers in this phone, and some of them are just that, a name and a phone number that is rarely called, rarely used. It's clear, those people, while important enough to make it in my phone, aren't important to connect on a regular basis. But those that I do call daily, text regularly, it's easy to see they have a greater importance in my life. Sure, there are exceptions, but the people that I am connecting with most are those who are most important to me. And as soon as I mentioned that, I couldn't help but think and ask myself, and I encourage you to ask yourselves, if my prayers had to be made through my cell phone, How clear would it be of how important my relationship with God was? Would God be in there as a contact that very rarely, if ever, gets used? Yeah, his name is there, but prayers don't go up all that often. Or or maybe it's uh, times when there's a particular need or something going on, all of a sudden there's a flurry of calls and texts and it lasts for a season. But once that need is over and once that season of difficulty passes, then so does the connection and the communication. Or is it very clear that your relationship with God is important because very regularly, all of the time, you are in conversation with him, connecting with him, talking with him, and communing with him? Again, the simple point is, I think it's fairly valid to say that as often as you connect with someone, it demonstrates just how important your relationship is. And so, based on your prayer life, How important is your relationship to God with you? I don't want to go all the way back and re-preach our whole sermon series that we just concluded on the wages of sin. But again, I kind of want to build on that. And uh, I also think that in order to understand what our catechism and especially our text are talking about this morning, we do have to go all the way back to the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were created and placed in that garden, they were created as all human beings were created in order to live in a relationship with the God that had created them. And that's exactly what their life was like when they were in the garden. They walked with God. 
In all things, he was there and they were there. And you could say prayer was unnecessary at that stage in history because God was always present. They did life together. And it was a beautiful picture of the reason why God had created Adam and Eve. But, but when sin entered the world, Instead of running to God, Adam and Eve ran away from God. And they went and hid themselves out of shame for their sin. And what is more, because of their sin, God in his holiness could not allow them to be in his presence, could not allow them to eat of the tree of life. And so he banished them from his presence and kicked them out of the garden, saying they no longer could have that close of a relationship together because of their sin. And so there was a distance in that relationship that God had intended to be good and right. And you can only imagine a few years down the road as Adam was dealing with the struggles of weeds filling his tiny little garden that he was using to feed himself, sweating from his bow, desiring to know what God's will was and wanting to talk with him as he once had. You can imagine Eve having gone through the pains of childbirth and the struggles that she was experiencing and the power dynamics between her relationship and Adam and just wanting to again know God and walk with him as they once had in the garden. Both of them desiring that relationship that had been separated because of their very own sin. But knowing that it was forever damaged as long as they lived on this earth because of what they had done. Well, many thousands of years later, that desire to approach God, to walk with him, to have a relationship with him remained. And so what God did, wanting a relationship with the people he had created, he formed a unique bond with one person named Abraham, a covenant relationship that's saying, I will be your God and you and your descendants will be my people. And after God led those people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, God set up this system whereby the people could approach him. First of all, the presence of God so that the people could know of who he was, was symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. And then that Ark was placed first in the tabernacle and then in the temple in what was known as the most holy place where nobody was allowed to go but where the Ark was placed. And then outside of that was the Holy of Holies where the lampstand was and the showbread was. And then outside of that was the court of the priests and outside of that the court of the Israelites. Beyond that the court of women and outside of that the court of Gentiles. But all of that was kind of set up to say you cannot go near a holy God in a casual and easy way. That there are barriers between you and your relationship with God. And those barriers are to protect you again because of your sin. And so if an unholy people, a sinful people wanted to approach a holy God. Then they needed someone to go between 
a mediator to facilitate that relationship. And the person or the role that was given and designed to do exactly that was the role of a priest. The priest was that go-between uh, that, that person that would help lead the people into the presence of God by showing them how to offer the right sacrifices, either of guilt or, or thanksgiving. Leading them in the worship of God and helping them approach that God in the careful ways that God had laid out in his law and in his rule. Of all of the things that the priests did, one of the greatest that was recognized was what took place on the Day of Atonement, a major festival for the Israelite people that focused on their relationship with the Lord. And of the many things that made that day special, it was the one day out of the year when the high priest was allowed to enter into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Because that was such a significant event, the Bible lays out a whole bunch of prescriptions for how the priest had to prepare themselves to get cleansed in order to enter into the presence of God in that way. There were sacrifices that they had to offer for their own sin. They had to bathe themselves and cleanse their body, and then they had to put on special garments designed and made just for that day alone. And then when they did enter with probably great fear and anxiety into that most holy place, they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, demonstrating again that need that you cannot go to God without your sins being dealt with, being atoned for. And that this was the way, through these sacrifices, through this blood, the people could say, we are sorry for our sins, and oh Lord, we just want to walk with you. And that's a lot of the background <clears throat> for our text from Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, to put it in historical context, the book of Hebrews was written likely about 40 years after Jesus had gone to the tomb and rose again from the grave. And although it appears that the temple likely still existed when it was written, the whole book of Hebrews was written to explain how that old system, that old pathway to approaching God through sacrifices at the temple had all been fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. As the priests of the Old Testament were the mediators, the go-betweens of an unholy people and a holy God, Jesus had become that go-between for the rest of history. As the text says, Jesus was the great high priest. He was a human that was tempted and therefore could sympathize or understand our struggles, but as the Son of God, he never gave into those temptations himself. And that is why when he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, he was the perfect sacrifice. And he was the one overseeing that sacrifice, so he was acting as the priest. He was offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, the once for all payment, atonement for all of human sin. And as we celebrated last week in his resurrection from the grave, it was clear that the sacrifice had been accepted and he defeated death. Now as I go into all of that historical detail, I 
hear in the back of my mind one of the commentators that I read saying, this language about priests and sacrifices to someone who doesn't attend church regularly and may not be familiar with the scriptures sounds very foreign, very unusual, and very weird to our current context and our culture. And so if you're lost in all of those details, let's just get back to the heart of it. As Jesus offered his sacrifice on the cross and rose from the grave, let's get back to that question. What did he accomplish? What changes for us? Now, when we ask that question, I'm almost sure that the first answer that comes to most everybody's mind is the one that we talked about last week. That in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus offers you the free gift of eternal life through his sacrifice. And so what Jesus accomplished for us, what changes is that when I die, because I am forgiven, I know I can live eternally and look forward to that eternal life with God in glory forever. But... While that is certainly true and is an incredibly important part of what Christ did accomplish, the Bible is also abundantly clear that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not meant just to be something that means something to you on the day that you die. That you can kind of say, okay, I, I've committed my life to Christ and I guess I've done everything I need to do. I'll just wait to die and then his sacrifice will actually mean something. No, the Bible is clear. The effects of the resurrection should be applied to our lives right now. And it should affect the way that we live every single day. And that's a major point of our text from Hebrews. Because we have seen the great high priest come and offer his sacrifice, we have been declared forgiven and righteous in the eyes of God. When Jesus offered his life then, that temple curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn into and the pathway toward God was opened once and for all. And therefore, we no longer have to keep our distance from God. Therefore, we no longer have to go through an earthly priest as a mediator in order to approach God. We no longer have to offer the animals and their sacrifices and their bloods because the blood of Christ was once and for all given for us. Instead, as the text says, because we have Jesus, the Son of God, as our great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author is saying that instead of going through the system of the temple, Jesus fulfilled all that that temple was pointing to, and therefore we can go straight to God through Jesus. Like Adam and Eve, we can walk every day with our Lord, doing life with him at all times, as he intended from the beginning. We can do that when we've sinned. And we need to confess our sin and find his mercy and his forgiveness. We seek the mercy in Christ. We can do that when we have need. Hebrews was written at a time when the church was having a lot of need. 
The people were constantly being persecuted and harassed for their faith. There were all kinds of temptations to just quit the faith, to distance yourself from the church because they were being harassed and criticized from every angle. But the constant theme is to stand firm, hold fast, and persevere in your faith because God will supply the grace that you need during this difficult time of need. And more than just what happens when we die, that's what Jesus did for us. He made the way so that we, an unholy people, can approach a holy God and do so with confidence. And how do we do that? We do that in prayer. Instead of doing all of the things that we've talked about and getting animals and sacrificing them and blood and going to a particular place and walking through rituals with priests, we can just speak to our God at any time, anywhere. And that's the very reason why the Catechism speaks about prayer the way that it does. In asking that all-important question, why do Christians need to pray? First of all, notice the premise behind that question and much of the answer to it. Prayer is necessary. If we are going to claim to have a relationship with our Lord, we need to be in prayer. It is absolutely required of us. But we don't pray simply because we are commanded. We pray out of gratitude. And that's, again, more than just making sure that every once in a while in the midst of our requests, we make sure to throw in a thank you every once in a while. It's the very act of prayer that is gratitude. Every time we approach God in prayer, we are taking advantage of the pathway that Jesus has opened up to us through his death and resurrection. And that's why the Catechism also says prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness requires, that God requires of us. Again, as we highlighted last week, when Jesus rose from the grave, he gave you a gift. Now again, if you go to a human world, if I give you a gift and you say, oh, thank you, I love it. And then later on, a couple of weeks or months, I see that you've never taken that gift out of the package. You've put it in your closet. You've never opened it. You've never used it. You would rightly wonder whether you truly appreciated, I would rightly wonder whether you truly appreciated that gift that I gave you. Well, it's the very same thing with our relationship with God. If Jesus says, I have opened up the pathway so that you can, with confidence, approach God at all times for any need, for forgiveness, for grace to guide you in your life, and yet you never take advantage of that. Well, again, how, only, how deep is your relationship with the Lord and how much do you appreciate what God has done for you? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, since prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us, then if we really appreciate and understand what Christ did for us, then we need to be a people of prayer. 
And that's where our new sermon series will be going. This is a series where after Easter, I hope to invite you to give thanks to God through a more focused effort in our prayer lives as an act of response and thanks. We're going to do that in our morning worship services by looking at the Heidelberg Catechism's ongoing discussion of the Lord's Prayer, that prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples, not just as the words to say, but as a model for how we approach the God that we are invited to. Uh, and so we're going to work through that in our morning worship services. But what is more is we're going to supplement that in our evening worship services. We're going to continue to do what we often do in our evening services, being a little bit more casual and conversational. And we're going to focus and use our evening services, as we often do, as more dedicated time of prayer. But to look at some of those ways that we do pray and to answer some of your questions about prayer. And for many of you, if the evening services have fallen off your radar, if you've rarely gone or, or never gone to one of our services, I want to invite you to use this season as a time to, to check it out. At, at 6 o'clock on Sunday nights, I truly believe, as I always do, that you will find that hour given in worship as a valuable time to your ongoing relationship with the Lord. So in this season, I encourage you to come again. And join us for that time of worship as we explore, continue to explore prayer together. But in the end, as one commentator rightly pointed out, ultimately prayer is not something that you preach on or talk about. It is something that you do. And my greatest hope for all of us is that we not just Allow this to become a season of thinking about prayer and hearing sermons of prayer. But all of us will find this to be a season to refocus in our prayer lives. Again, I worry that if our prayer lives were captured on our cell phones, that it would not appear that our relationship with God is all that important or all that as strong because our prayers are offered up infrequently. Or not often. And I know that that's not for everybody. But after Easter especially, the resurrected Christ opened that pathway to the Lord so that we can approach him directly, whenever, and with confidence. And hopefully through these next weeks, as we focus on the gift of prayer, we will become more and more a people that appreciate what Christ has done for us by actually engaging in approaching the presence of our God. It is, after all, the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us for what he's done through Jesus Christ. And so let us approach him in prayer at this time. Father in heaven, without the work of Christ, those words that I just spoke, calling you Father, and, and praying to you would be impossible because we still would be at a distance separated from you. And so we begin our prayer by thanking you for making that pathway through Christ to a renewed and restored relationship with you. Where we don't have to go through sacrifices or through priests or go to particular places, but that we can approach you and do so with confidence. And as we thank you, 
we also ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for knowing that and thinking about it, but far too often neglecting the gift that you have given to us. So I pray that we would be a people of prayer. And that as we look at the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, it would instruct our lives. And as we go through this sermon series, it would be an encouragement where you would just draw us more closely to you as we pursued you more intentionally and more regularly with our prayers. And I do pray that every time we seek you, we would find. Every time we knocked, the door would be open and that you would bless us as we continue to walk with you in the very way that we were created from the beginning. Again, thank you for making this pathway possible through Jesus Christ, and it is in his name we pray this. Amen.